Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. Uh, We've got a fantastic episode coming up today with Dr. Brian Cole. He's an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist based in Chicago at Rush University Medical Center. We talk about a number of different topics in sports medicine, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, We've had a great uh, deal of feedback from our first two episodes, so thanks very much for everyone that's reached out. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, please check them out. They're available on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, And follow us on social media if you're interested in staying up to date on things coming up uh, on the show, future episodes, that sort of thing. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's at the Sports Medicine Podcast. So so check us out um, and send us your feedback. The email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in potentially being a guest on the show or have an idea for a future episode, or if you're interested in sponsoring a future episode, please reach out um, and let us know. Finally, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That'll really help us and increase exposure for for the podcast, so so please do that. We've got a number of great episodes coming up. Uh, we're going to launch soon a, uh, a series. It's going to be either two or three parts on concussions and head injury uh, in sports, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Finally, this episode is sponsored by Trumo BCT, formerly known as Harvest Technologies. Uh, They're a global leader in blood component, therapeutic apheresis, cellular, and autologous biologic technologies. They believe in the potential of cells to do even more for patients than they do today. As innovators for over 40 years in cell separation, Trumo is committed to providing autologous biologic technologies that deliver consistently reproducible results that clinicians and healthcare organizations can trust. Through their service and support, they enable physicians to use cutting-edge technologies, increase patient access to autologous therapies, and continue to advance next-generation technologies. Uh, So check out uh, the Harvest system for PRP and BMAC. Again, I've used both of these uh, before. A very user-friendly system um, that produces a great product. Uh, So check out Harvest for both PRP and BMAC. Anyways, that's it. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Follow us on uh, social media. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and send us your feedback. Hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Cole. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We are here at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago with orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist, Dr. Brian Cole. Thank you very much, Dr. Cole, for being with us. Pleasure to join you. So Dr. Cole is one of the more known orthopedic surgeons in the United States, largely for his research and publications on cartilage. Um, he's a professor of orthopedics at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush University. Uh, he's got a tremendously long list of accolades here, and I'll, I'll start off with just a quick a- uh, anecdote uh, in a second about, about Dr. Cole and how I learned about him. But he lectures nationally and internationally. He holds several prestigious leadership positions, um, some in some prominent sports medicine societies, including the Arthroscopy Association of North America, or ANA. Uh, he's published more than 1,000 articles, 10 widely read orthopedic textbooks, uh, multiple best doctors lists, uh, and he's also the physician for uh, the Chicago Bulls uh, and one of the physicians for the Chicago White Sox. Um, So just a quick anecdote, when I was doing my research block at the University of Toronto, I think it was in my first or second year of residency, uh, 
Dr. Cole's name kept on coming up in, in, all, in the research that I was doing and, and kept seeing his name in, in the journals. And eventually I Googled him and found, found out and just read a little bit about you online um, and looked up your CV. And I remember, I remember uh, bookmarking your resume uh, and saving it in my computer. I actually still have it bookmarked, bookmarked today. But uh, I remember just going through it and thinking to myself, oh my goodness, look at, look at all the work this guy's done. I think his resume is about 250 pages long. Um, so if you ever feel like you've done a lot of work or feel very accomplished in life, you need to go and read Dr. Cole's CV. Uh, first of all, you need to put off about four or five days to get through it. Uh, but it really is, is quite, uh, remarkable everything that you've done. Well, 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 let me, let me clarify something on that. It is not, it, that is not the product of an individual, but it's a product of a team. And that's right. what's really important to understand because none of us can accomplish the things that we do without having the proper people around us. So, uh, I appreciate what you're saying and I'm flattered. Uh, we all have to recognize that none of us do this alone and having excellent people around you makes all the difference in the world. So I'm always interested in how people got to where they are today and how you got to where you are today. So just in terms of your path, uh, what got you to to this point now where you are? Um, I know you did your undergrad degree at the University of Illinois and then went on to the University of Chicago, uh, I think for your MD, but then you stopped during that time to get your MBA. Is that right? Yes. So I, yes. So you know, not to bore with a curriculum vitae, uh, like sitting in a deposition. So no one's going to be that interested. But I will tell you this: that um, I, you know, after finishing college, I did go to the University of Chicago, and um, I did three years of medical school, and really had no business background at the time, but I had an intrinsic interest in business. Truth be told, the things that you and I do each day are really embedded in a in a in a, in a foundation of business and business principles, right? We're in a service industry taking care of people. So uh, I wanted to get some additional education. And, and it was at a time when medicine was in a bit of turmoil. Uh, in, in the 1980s, it's the uh, advent of HMOs and managed care. There was a lot of global dissatisfaction amongst physicians. And I really felt that having some uh, additional acumen would be particularly important for the present and the future. And it, it has proven to be that way. So I took a year off between three and four and uh, got my MBA at the University of Chicago and then went right back into, me- into uh, medical school to finish to apply for residencies. So why did you choose to pursue a career in orthopedics, in particular sports medicine? Was there a particular time when you said to yourself, this is it, this is what I want to do? Now, if you speak to most individuals who choose orthopedic residencies, they have a very common thread, which is they often had some injury. It, it, there was some role model, some experience that uh, got them initially interested in, and they gravitated uh, specifically to orthopedics. I mean, some people are like in utero choosing orthopedics, and it's become that competitive uh, to the extent now that um, uh, you really kind of have to know early, and then you got to go at it hard. I was a lot different. Um, you know, frankly, I go back to even in, in, in junior high and middle school, I wanted to be uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist and had an interest in children and thought that maybe being a pediatric psycholo- psychiatrist would be interesting or a pediatrician, and um, just sort of went along and knew very early on probably high school that I thought I wanted to go into medicine and for a very basic reason just honestly to help people I mean it sounds so rudimentary and almost trite but I think all those of us including you who go into medicine would still go back to the roots and say look it wasn't I wanted control I wanted to make a nice income I wanted to know something that someone else did doesn't it's really that we get extraordinary gratification from being able to help people and that evolved over time where when I was a resident excuse me, when I was a medical student, I applied to two different residencies as a 
third, whenever we do it, a third year, third, fourth year transition, uh, I was interested in OBGYN infertility and or orthopedics. And I know, how about it? So, but what's interesting is there, there are some commonalities, you know, so infertility was really interesting to me. Um, and it was sort of a, an arm's length away from getting away from the kid thing, which I really enjoyed pediatric medicine, but was dealing with, you know, a very challenging problem where, you know, people have trouble with conception and, and having children and so forth. And the physiology was amazing. Um, and really what changed for me was role models. And I use this for my educational principles when I work with young people. On any given week, I'll have high school students, college students, medical students, postdocs observing mainly to let them see what life can be like in an orthopedic practice, sports medicine, and so forth, and to hopefully be a good role model because I remember those are the things that were most impactful for, to me when I was younger, and that's what ultimately led me to choose orthopedics. I, you know, frankly, I just didn't meet the role models in OBGYN or infertility who were happy in their career, and it was largely ref- a, largely a reflection of the 1980s where. Uh, there was just a lot of dissatisfaction. There was this egress of uh, men getting out of OBGYN. There was uh, 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 increasing uh, balance in terms of uh, genders who were going into it, which was just a reflection of sort of who was choosing what. And uh, there were people who were extremely dissatisfied, and the litigation was high and so forth. And then I met some orthopedic surgeons who were incredibly happy. And I'm like, wow, there must be a reason everyone wants to do this. And then you realize that you can decide you're going to be in the middle of the night dealing with some awful medical condition, nausea, vomiting, things of that nature, which is great for some people who have that interest. We need those people. Or you can deal with an individual who is otherwise healthy who has a very specific problem, and you can therefore make a very solid difference in a motivated individual who would otherwise like to have no pain and more function. So that's And then the other thing about orthopedics is it's very embedded in science and translational research. I recognized early on that orthopedics was a virtual playground for um, identifying a problem, we didn't have a suitable answer. You could actually study it in short order. You didn't have to be a PhD or a full-fledged scientist. Take it to the lab, bring it back to the clinic, and make a difference in someone's life even further. That's the other thing that orthopedics has. And now then you went on to do a research here at HSS in New York City, and I mean you clearly must love doing research. Yeah, I actually applied to the MD-PhD program initially for University of Chicago and got in, but I elected not to do it because I learned from my mentors that you can still do research, be considered a, a competent researcher, and not have to do an additional five years to get a PhD or three to five years. Um, so I decided not to do that program. So a one year of research after my general surgery year uh, was a very good way before starting residency to have dedicated time to do uh, some animal work, translational work, uh, and so forth. Uh, and I think you did some studies in metabolic bone disease while you're in New York. Do you think that's what led you to become the cartilage guy that you are today? I'm not sure. I think that it was, I was working at the time with uh, a wonderful individual at the Hospital for Special Surgery, Joe Lane, who's still in practice there. And Joe is a, a, an oncologist, I believe, by trade, but has really been involved with metabolic bone disease uh, and had an interest in growth factors and so forth. We did some of the early growth factor work and it was really wide open. It wasn't just metabolic bone, but I, I think the thing that got me most interested in cartilage was that I recognized, again, as a resident, one particular day, for example, where we were performing an arthroscopy where we used a small camera to look in someone's knee, we had a woman who was uh, had chondromalacia, which is basically loss of cartilage in her patella. And I remember uh, helping perform an arthroscopy, and... Um, we cleaned out her joint, and I asked the surgeon, the attending at the time, said, you know, well, how's this going to affect her? Is it going to work? He's like, well, not. He's like, I might temporize it, but 
I got nothing else. She's too young for a knee replacement. Uh, we can maybe do cortisone, but physical therapy and anti-inflammatories, but there's really nothing I have for her, and she's going to live a life of pain. And at that time, there was virtually nothing available other than a procedure called microfracture, and it wasn't really effective for the patella or the kneecap. So I realized early on that that was just an area that was poorly understood. There weren't really any clear-cut decision-making algorithms. And right around the time I finished my fellowship after residency at uh, special surgery, uh, I finished at the University of Pittsburgh. I, it was at a time when a couple of techniques were then becoming in the, in the, in the forefront in terms of having access to uh, options, and that's when I said, look, there's got to be someone who can put organization to decision-making here because no one really knows what to do. So let's look at the evidence or where it's lacking, figure out what has to be done to help people make decisions, physicians make decisions, which I think is the most important part of being a physician. And um, that's what really started it, uh, stimulated the program that we started in Chicago in uh, 1997. And I think now we might be the busiest uh, cartilage repair or restoration center in the world in terms of the number of transplants and people that we see and treat. So you're obviously a very, very busy guy. What does your week look like in terms of day-to-day? How many days are you in the OR? How many days are you in clinic? How does your research factor into this? You know, just, you know, uh, time is sort of um, uh, uh, a concept that's hard to get your arms around. I'll just tell you in general what I do. Um, I... Uh, I have a number of responsibilities which are administrative as well. So my days are generally pretty long, although I still have, you know, I've, I, I have three younger children. So trying to balance all that is still a premium for me. Um, but I will tell you that my general work day is uh, Mondays I see patients. It's a full day of patients. Um, uh, I start the day with usually a meeting, uh, you know, from 7 to 8 in the morning, then full day of patients, and then we end the day with our research conference where we review all the active research projects by joint basic science or clinical. How many research projects do you have on the go at one time? Oh, gosh. we have. We, it's gotten to be so many now that our group, and it's not just me, are just the, the division of sports medicine, we have a research meeting for basic science shoulder, basic science knee, basic science excuse me, clinical shoulder, clinical knee, those are four. Every week we do a different one, and then we have to break out hip and cartilage separate because we can't get it all in. Uh, and then, you know, each of the physicians has two or three research assistants uh, that are full-time. So I have three people that work with me on a yearly basis, and they're usually young people that are doing an additional year like I did, so trying to recreate that same thing. So at any rate, uh, Mondays, that would be a typical Monday. There may be a dinner meeting, or if my kids are not in camp or out away at college or whatever, then I make sure I don't have nighttime meetings or dinners. Tuesdays is generally OR all day. Uh, but I always have a workout. I have a trainer I work out with twice a week, and that's really important, something I advocate for. So that's my time. No one can take it away from me, and you know I'm not there to make an excuse for it. I never book meetings between 6 and 7 or have something I have to be at that early if I can avoid it. So that's Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then it's OR all day Tuesday, OR all day Wednesday. Thursday is patients all day, and Friday tends to be a flip. Uh, a flip day in terms of academics, a squeeze in a case if I have to. But I also travel about three months a year. In either for you know family or research, so it ends up being you know my I have a physician assistant who keeps he's like a numbers guy, and you know I it, it basically ends up being about seventy, uh, seventy uh, clinic days and maybe ninety OR days a year, and so you do the math. There's a lot of days left over, so other things are happening that are not seeing a patient. Uh, or doing surgery because I'm dealing with managing, you know, the, the Chicago Bulls medical team. We're dealing with the White Sox issues. We're dealing with another minor league baseball team where there's a lot of sports coverage. I cover about 30 plus basketball games a year, for example, and about 10 baseball games. Are you on the sideline for the Chicago Bulls still? Yes, I am. 
Yeah, so that's fairly time-consuming as well, but still enjoyable amazingly. So something I want to ask you about, you recently did a TED Talk, uh, and it's called Sparing the Scalpel, Surgeon's Perspective on the Future of Orthopedics. Uh, For anyone that hasn't listened to it, you should check it out. But you talk about your role in orthopedics, uh, which is relieving pain while restoring function. Something else that you mention and talk about, but I think it's largely forgotten in the culture and practice of medicine today in the United States, and that's this concept of doing nothing or the art of doing nothing. The concept of uh, sort of the art of doing less or nothing goes back to a book uh, called The Medical Heretic written by uh, Dr. Robert Mendelson. And he's since passed, but was a really interesting character who uh, was a pediatrician who I shadowed at his home because at the time he had actually lost, yeah, he had actually, I believe, lost his medical license. So extraordinarily controversial guy, uh, was against vaccinations, was uh, really felt that we were full of this medical paternalism, that women were uh, not treated fairly, you know, some really unique and very relevant ideas, uh, but probably at the time didn't people just didn't recognize how relevant his ideas were. It was a very progressive thinker. But the things that he heightened my awareness to were this concept, was this concept of sort of technology over reason, you know, ordering a test when we need to be, you know, when you think about being a doctor, the basics pretty much apply. You walk into a room, you assess the gender of the patient, the age of the patient, the physical physical habitus, their body weight, their height, just by looking at them, how they sit, how they stand, uh, what they're wearing, how they wear their clothes, and then you take a history, and you can do the history in a minute or less and make them feel like you spoke with them in an hour, for an hour if you ask the right questions, and then you do a physical exam, which may or may not be relevant or at least verifies what you think is going on. We often get x-rays, which can typically be avoided in many instances, and then, unfortunately, they would come without x-rays and come with an MRI because of this, this, this arbitrary importance that, you know, people, if you don't get an MRI, you've done an incomplete evaluation. Because you absolutely need an MRI to see an orthopedist, right? Exactly. So, the, so those concepts of where it's testing uh, without just simply behaving like we were meant to behave as physicians, as detectives and problem solvers, was something that he alerted me to, and that had a huge impact. And it was, it's uh, Lisa Lisa Rosenbaum, uh, who is works. She's an editor for New England Journal of Medicine, and also writes for the New Yorker, or the yeah, I think it's the New Yorker, and it speaks about this concept of the art of doing nothing, and um, um, it speaks to the, how patients really feel that you know an MRI, for example, is the they don't realize it's a diagnostic test that can be avoided because we can make a diagnosis without an MRI. And the problem with an MRI is it's a very sensitive test, for example, that has a lot of noise and and brings in things. If you want to find an abnormality, get an MRI, right? If you want a reason to operate on an athlete's shoulder, get an MRI. Yeah, and I'm constantly saying to my patients, if we stuck every 50 or 60-year-old into an MRI scanner and got an MRI of their shoulder, almost all of them are going to have something noticeably wrong. Yeah, so still to this day, a lot of the problem is I'm in a somewhat of a tertiary practice, so people are coming in with them, and mostly they're coming in saying, hey, I've got this, I'm broken, I must need to be fixed, because if I'm not fixed, something bad will happen later on. And most of what we do is really provide reassurance that I've learned. Despite being 22 years in practice, I would say that 80% of my activities and decision-making are for non-surgical things. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You know, there are people who do what I do, and you know, for whatever reason, their practice is maybe 80, 90% surgery. Maybe they've refined it much better than I have. Um, but 
the bottom line is it's about decision making and 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 keep finding ways to keep people out of the operating room and helping them to learn what the problem is. Not that surgery is bad or dangerous, just helping them to learn what the problem. So with that, I want to move into this topic of orthobiologics, which certainly seems to be dominating the headlines of orthopedic and sports medicine journals these days. Do you think that this is the future of sports medicine? Well, I like the fact that you called it orthobiologics because I think that's the proper term. Um, as opposed to regenerative medicine, because the reality is in orthopedics, we're probably regenerating nothing. That point right there is just so important. Absolutely. Yeah, so most of this is uh, driven by, this is a, uh, you, you have to ask yourself kind of who's driving the bus here and in, in, in the media, the uh, the internet, uh, some unscrupulous behavior, quite frankly. Um, um, uh, uh, right. And I'm not even saying on the part of the patient, and frankly, on the part of people providing it, and there's a lot of misrepresentation. So the concept of orthobiologics is really uh, a principle where we use exogenous or external factors, usually growth factors, to apply either in an office setting or as an adjunct to surgery. And in general, our bodies want to heal. Our bodies have stem cells. They want to function. They want, we want to heal. But we have a, sort of a hostile environment inherent in, our, in, a, in, a, in a disease state. So if you just use arthritis, for example, if you could actually take a knee and unload it, the knee would actually develop some form of tissue. It may not be normal cartilage, but it would actually develop tissue across the joint if you remove load, which is further compromising the joint because the joint is not healthy and doesn't respond favorably to load. But if you could actually unload it in a functional way, you could literally build up tissue and protective, uh, something that might even be considered protective, and reduce pain and improve function, right? Right, for example, or an osteotomy or something where we do what's called a realignment procedure to take load off. Or ask a patient to eliminate 5 pounds, which is the equivalent of, say, 30 to 35 pounds if they're walking up and down stairs. Right, right, so exactly. So, So all of that factors in uh, with our with our decision making. So all, what I'm trying to say is our bodies have this intrinsic desire to heal. These re, re, these orthobiologics have the ability to upregulate that. And we've learned that in various places we can, um, we can utilize the benefits of growth factors that don't necessarily have to come from stem cells. Um, but stem cells are not generally being used because they are being driven to form tissue in a non-disease state. Right. The perception is a paracrine effect. Exactly. So a paracrine effect, for listeners who don't know, is basically the local environment is, is affected by growth factors that are present in that local milieu, that local environment. So the concept of using stem cells, for example, is not to take advantage of their ability to be driven down a certain cell pathway to form muscle, tendon, and other, but rather we capitalize on their ability to produce growth factors, drive other stem cells from you and me into the area that can promote healing and, and maybe regeneration in terms of a healing response. But there to date is not a therapeutic, for example, that I can inject into an arthritic joint to restore cartilage, to, to modify disease, as we say. I think that's the big misconception. Absolutely. So mostly what I do is sit down, take a deep breath, and have to explain it to people because what they have to realize is that many of them are unproven. Many of them are the most, if not all, are considered investigational. Third-party payers don't pay it. So it's really buyer beware. That being said, we use it. We recommend it with all of those cautions, precautionary uh, uh, advice. So this is one of your studies. It's published in AJSM in September 2016. It's hyaluronic acid versus platelet-rich plasma, a prospective double-blind clinical trial comparing clinical outcomes and effects of intraarticular biology for the treatment of knee osteoarthritis. So in summary, do you think that one is better than the other for knee arthritis, PRP or hyaluronic acid? The answer is yes. 
because you have to take into consideration many factors. The bottom line is if one uses, in my opinion, based upon the literature, high molecular weight hyaluronic acid, um, and in patients who have Kelgorn-Lawrence 2 and 3, they're not necessarily bone-on-bone, maybe the patellofemoral joint, but largely the tibiofemoral joint, hyaluronic acid is an effective and uh, what I'd say dominant treatment, treatment strategy in many but not all. Do you believe that you're losing the positive effect of hyaluronic acid if you use a low molecular weight product? It's my opinion you you potentially are. I don't know if it's residence time, overall efficacy, uh, potency, what have you, but there clearly is, if you look at the literature clear, uh, with that in mind and that lens, there clearly seems to be an advantage in my opinion my read of literature and many others who have done meta-analyses and systematic reviews that a high molecular weight uh, hyaluronic acid is superior to a low molecular weight for the treatment of arthritis, okay? That doesn't mean they both can't work. You're looking at statistics and probability of success here. It still is reimbursed in many but not all places. So I generally start with things that are financially responsible because they can be effective. Again, because I'm not able to say that PRP restores cartilage or other, but it's just another way to reduce pain and swelling and improve function, we use other factors to make our decision making. So my algorithm is I often will still start with corticosteroid injections. First of all, educate. It's okay to be in pain. You're not going to make it worse if you're active. Ice is one of the best anti-inflammatories we have. Lose a little bit of weight. Strengthening. Maybe orthotics in your shoes. Maybe a brace. Uh, glucosamine chondroitin sulfate. Not the best data, but might be helpful. Oral anti-inflammatories. All these things we can do. Then we get to the injections. I still use corticosteroids. If they don't get three months or more, I don't think it's really worth it, so I just stop doing it. Do you think that there's a downfall to using corticosteroids before you use PRP or RHA? There's no data that if they're separate in time that it makes them worse. You should, you know, So all the studies have usually had a washout period of three months, and they has not shown to have any detriment. So if they don't respond to it, then I will go to hyaluronic acid with or without PRP. So now I actually will give... Because HA is reimbursed in Illinois, not everywhere, we have to get pre-certification, I combine PRP with HA. But if I had to use one or the other, I would start with the reimbursed one first. Which is HA. Yeah, because if it works, it's, quote, it's a, you know, the risk is, on, is not on the patient. So ideally, if cost is not an issue for a patient, are you going to combine the two? That's correct. I, I believe there's enough preliminary basic science data, very little clinical, but some clinical, uh, level three, level four, that suggests that the combination can be synergistic. So that's my own treatment algorithm. And it's a leukocyte poor PRP. So I use hyaluronic acid, high molecular weight, and leukocyte poor PRP, three injections spaced seven to 10 days apart. How much PRP are you adding to the HA? Well, I mean, we do a 15cc blood. Yeah, I use, I use ACP. Okay. Yeah. So that's leukocyte poor. So just like high molecular weight, uh, hyaluronic acid is a dominant treatment strategy compared to low. I believe the low leukocyte poor PRP is a dominant treatment strategy. We've published it. Others have as well in meta-analyses and looking at the best of the best literature. I believe leukocyte poor PRP is superior to leukocyte rich for osteoarthritis. So do you think that BMAC or bone marrow aspirate concentrate is going to replace PRP? No, it's inconvenient, it's more expensive, it's more uh, uh, invasive, and the data today has, has not been suggested that it's beneficial in osteoarthritis. So everywhere you look these days, it's amnio this, amnio that, and this is this amniotic fluid or amniotic tissue product. 
Right. So again, uh, correct. So amniotic tissue generally does not have living cells. Most of them are decellularized. If it's cryopreserved, the cells that you're injecting are likely to be dead or ineffective. So think about amniotic tissue as a provision of growth factors. There are lots and lots of growth factors that are involved in the healing and anti-inflammatory pathway in amniotic tissue. The problem is the date data to date is about as bad as it is for BMAC. So there is no data in my mind that's dispositive of the fact that BMAC or or amniotic tissue or, or fat is any better than anything else. Now, it might be better, but I will tell you the best data is in PRP. So until that data emerges, and my own anecdotal experience is that it's not better. Look, you know, the placebo response, another thing we've studied greatly, is so incredibly potent, okay? So, you know, if you look at all these level one studies that have used saline, the MCID, minimally clinically important difference, has been met in a lot of these placebo-controlled trials in the placebo group because these are not... This group of patients that's being studied is not a normal group of patients. They're a captive audience. They're searching for something, and they're involved in a clinical study. So their sensitivity to respond is a lot different than the average person who walks in our office. So we have to be very careful about what we draw from clinical study, but that just doesn't exist right now with BMAC, adipose, or amniotic. Yeah, and I think this is part of the problem. So there was a study published in 2017 in AGSM which looked at patients with bilateral knee arthritis that were randomized to get bone marrow aspirate concentrate in one knee and then saline in the other knee. Now, I think there were a few intrinsic problems with the study, but the patients were followed for about six months after the procedure, and the overall conclusion that there was, was that there was no difference between the BMAC knee and the saline knee, which obviously doesn't put a very good spin on bone marrow aspirate concentrate for treating arthritis. Yeah, so there are some nuances in that study, but yes, that is the conclusion of that study. But I, you have to look at what they actually used on the on the uh, BMAC side, whether it was the, what what was in it, whether it was a platelet poor plasma, platelet poor plasma, and so forth. So you got to get down to the specifics. That's the other thing that is really we've done a very poor job in the literature is defining apples and apples and so yeah so you know what's the what's the fold increase in platelets what's the number of MSCs have we shown them to be active you know how how are the things that we're injecting handled prior to doing it and is there any validation to what's being injected and that's that's a huge problem with trying to draw conclusions and say well that all PRP is good or all PRP is bad and vice versa so changing topics a little bit here you've had the opportunity to work with some very high level athletes and you continue to be the team physician for the Chicago Bulls and the White Sox but I think what a lot of people forget about team physicians um, is that this is a very small part of your practice. It's tiny, yeah. yeah. I mean, there may be something every single day, but it's a phone call. It's a couple of emails. I'll have to see a player. But it's a very, you know, relative, well, in terms of patient management, small part of my life. Right. In terms of, in terms of in professional athletes, you know, what walks in the door, I don't get you know, 50 professional athletes a day, you know, very few people, if any, do. The point is, it's just, a, it's an it's an ebb and a flow. The time aspect is that the management of games and, you know, uh, combines and, and, and so forth and, and preseason physicals, and that's a really enormous time, uh, time uh, demand. But as far as day-to-day, my patients are like me and you. They want to be active. Uh, they, they have a very specific problem. They want to get better. And every once in a while, there's folded in there a collegiate or a, a professional athlete. So what can you take from dealing with these professional athletes that you can apply day-to-day to people that make up 99% of your practice? I think the basic uh, uh, point to recognize it is that there you can take the same condition in a professional athlete and that a non-high-level athlete might have, and the management could be completely different. And that's because the system that a professional athlete functions in really w- weighs heavily in terms of our decision-making. Are they able to play in pain? 
can they uh, is their performance suffering in a meaningful way? Is there uh, is the team up for roster changes? What does the agent want? What does the family want? Who's whispering in their ear? Uh, there's there's a tremendous number of individuals that are involved in the decision making process. That no longer is it just a medical decision and this often this one on one dialogue, but it's a co- complexity of issues that deal from contracts, the asset value of a, of a player, where they are in their cycle of their uh, uh, athletic career, and so forth. That to me is some of the most interesting aspects of managing an athlete, and most importantly, how, how to what it takes to actually earn their trust and have a heart to heart conversation with them to help educate them to the point where they actually believe what you're saying to be factually correct and this process of consensual decision making where you say look I really have your interest at heart let's figure out what's best for you and certainly we have to take into consideration all these other factors in terms of getting another contract and what year you are in the cycle of this and so forth but in the end it's all about your health that's a lot different than talking to a patient who comes in look I just dislocated my shoulder you know what should I do certainly there's all that consensual decision making but they don't have all those other factors that are operational at the same time right right do you enjoy it I love it still. I do because it's an it's an enormous challenge to it's an enormous challenge to maintain the confidence of an individual based upon all the things you've got to manage. You know, it's not just your your book knowledge, but it's just being a, a a human caring human being and helping them understand that you have no agenda. I'm not really a huge sports fan, which is probably works in my favor. You know, half the time when these guys come in, I have to have a, a physician assistant look up and say, you know. You know, who is, wh- who is this guy? Because it's just never been part of my, I've never been one of those stats guys who knows, you know, uh, it's just never been something I've done. I've either played individual sports or football, things like that, but not, it just hasn't been part of my, my DNA. So I, I love sports. I love watching basketball. I love watching football. Not a huge hockey fan, but talking to them about their craft and their trade when they are part of any of those sports or other sports, to me, is really fascinating in their dedication or commitment. And you see it, it and it's different from a, a professional professional athlete, sport by sport, position by position, and it's different whether it's professional collegiate or high school. So, and Olympic, I mean, that's, that, there's a tremendous amount of heterogeneity across all those groups. So we're getting to the end here, and I know your time's extremely valuable. Uh, so we're going to go to some rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask the question, and then you give your response in, you know, a few seconds. Okay. So we're going to start easy, and then these are going to get a little bit tougher as we go along. None of these are rehearsed, by the way. I have not previewed these questions. Okay. Question one, New York City or Chicago? Uh, Chicago, much more livable place, but I still love the excitement in New York. If you weren't an orthopedic surgeon, you would be a? I would be someone at the FDA or regulatory health, surgeon-in-chief, something like that that really deals with policy. Do you think that's something in the future for you? Don't know. Next question. If you could do only one procedure for the rest of your life, what would it be? You'd have to ask me year by year. Uh, right now, I love doing uh, a superior capsule reconstruction because it's technically challenging and it's super fun, and the patients do amazingly well when they're properly indicated. Last year, I would have said uh, meniscal transplant with an osteoconalga, which I still love, but I'm really enjoying getting better and better at a superior capsule reconstruction. Yeah, so I heard you did a superior capsular reconstruction or an SCR in about 20 minutes. Uh, I told my buddy that I was coming down to see you here, and he said, yeah, he did an SCR in about 20 minutes at Anna. <laughs> I did do one at AOSSM, which had even more people watching, which was really high pressure, but fun. It wasn't with a lot of help like anything else. So on to ACL reconstruction. Autographed or allograft? Bone tendon bone autographed 85% of the time. Okay, so the next question was BTB or hamstring. So BTB 80% of the time. Uh, do you do single bundle or double bundle reconstructions? Single. Transtibial drilling or anteromedial portal drilling? 
Anterior medial portal. Flexible or straight reamers? Flexible for the femur, straight for the tibia. For an isolated cartilage defect in the knee, osteochondral allograft or Macy? My number one treatment based upon the patients I see is, is uh, I use an osteochondral allograft because I tend to see more complex failed uh, previous procedures, but I think Macy is great for the patellofemoral joint surface defect where the bone is clean, but osteochondral allograft is my go-to because a lot of these patients are getting meniscal transplants. They have osteochondral problems that may have just started out with a surface defect. That's interesting. So microfracture for the knee, good or bad? Not bad, just has to have basic principles adhere to, which namely is violating the calcified layer, creating vertical walls, defects less generally less than four square centimeters, have to respect the rehabilitation because it is a fracture. They will get subchondral sclerosis. So heel touch at most if it's tibial femoral, full weight bearing and extension if it's patellofemoral, and you still have to cor- correct comorbidities. We spend all this time, money, and energy correcting comorbidities for, say, an osteochondral yet we ignore them when we do a marrow stimulation, and we blame marrow stimulation for not working. So I totally believe it has a role in the knee, but judiciously, and you got to do a correct, and you have to deal with the rehab. So we'll move to the shoulder here. Out of 10, how effective is the superior capsular reconstruction? In my patients, it's been a 9.5 out of 10. So you think this is a major breakthrough? Yeah, but I think you have to have, you know, I'm pretty, I, I stick to the indications. They have an intact subscap. They have minimal glenohumeral osteoarthritis. They have hematic less than grade three changes, and they're motivated, and they have pain, and they failed everything else. They are some, one of the most satisfied patient groups that I've ever treated, besides a reverse arthroplasty patient, ironically, ironically, because they do well too. You just got to figure out who gets what. Right. So anterior shoulder instability with bony loss requiring a bony procedure. So this is patients that have dislocated their shoulder, which who continue to have anterior shoulder instability. Do you prefer a Latterjay or a distal tibial allograft? Latterjay all day long, although I still do distal tibias, but very specific small subset. We'll move back to the knee here. So the anterolateral ligament in the knee, which has been getting a little bit of attention over the last couple of years in the research, do you think this is myth or reality? Mostly myth, and I will use an ITB tenodesis for those who are hyperextensile females uh, failing. I think the ITB tenodesis is more, is at least as anatomic, if not more, and really can make a difference, and I don't worry about overconstraint. Do you ever do an isolated ALL reconstruction in conjunction with an ACL reconstruction? I have a bore. I did them initially. I felt that it wasn't really, it, it was very unsatisfying in the operating room. Yeah. Couldn't figure out how this thing even worked the way, and I followed all the rules. And an ITB tenodesis has a, has a very uh, definitive insertion point on Gertie's tubercle, and it makes sense to me intuitively as long as you go into the LCL to sling it. And it's a super easy, cost effective operation. I don't think we know definitively, but I think guys like Alan Getgood and others are going to help us understand the right yeah. thing to do. Easy operation, cost effective, and I do like it for those higher, I don't do it primarily, hardly ever, but I use it for my revisions for reasons we don't really understand why they failed. Big pi- And those who have a big pivot shift. What would you say is the most satisfying operation that you do in terms of patient outcomes? I think uh, arthroplasty of the shoulder in general, uh, reverse or primary, is probably the most satisfying operation I do. That, oh. That's got the biggest magnitude change. They're most miserable coming in. They've waited the longest, have the most progressive disease, and they're so happy so quickly in most but not all instances that it's the most gratifying subjectively in terms of a patient happiness that I do. You could argue that doing a cartilage transplant is very gratifying because they've been told they have nothing they can that will help them. They've had multiple operations, and when they do well, that's incredibly satisfying for a young, active population. So a massive rotator cuff in a 65-year-old, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty or an SCR? Uh, if they have... Um, 
if they are, if they have, you know, if they have, if they have minimal, it, I divide them. If they have okay. minimal OA, intact subscap, Hamada less than three, and have, um, especially if they failed a previous cuff, they will often be an SCR candidate. If they have OA, they're high riding, they're truly pseudoparalytic, and have passive motion loss, and is sick, are sick of having surgery, that's a reverse. Proximal biceps pathology in a 50-year-old. In general, do you prefer a tenotomy or a tenodesis? And I think we all know the answer to this. Always subpetral tenodesis. Do you use a screw or a button? I like uh, I like a all-suture anchor with tape because it's not about the anchor. It's, you need a, st a very small drill hole, which has the least amount of risk of fracture. I don't believe the tenodesis screws were meant to be used that low. And um, I want the it's the suture tendon interface that has to be strong. So if you use tape and you do a proper suturing technique into the tendon, that thing should heal, uh, and it's cost-effective. Treatment of anterior shoulder instability, a.k.a. anterior labral repair, or a bank heart lesion, do you tie knots or go knotless? No knots, and I always put, I always make a seven o'clock portal putting an anchor posterior inferiorly, the circle concept that Russ yeah. Warren uh, has, has popularized. Uh, and usually it's two anchors anterior inferiorly depending on the anatomy, you know, obviously, yeah. but standard traumatic instability when I operate, two anterior inferiorly, one posterior inferiorly would be my most common uh, um, uh, um, technique. So I know we've kind of talked or addressed this question during the interview, but yes or no, mesenchymal stem cells or MSCs are the future of sports medicine? No. So in your opinion, what is? <laughs> I Frankly, it's a, it's a much more, uh, I'll take a little more, uh, I'll take a step back and I'll say the future is understanding the natural history of problems like a cartilage defect, like a, rota a neglected rotator cuff tear, like a neglected shoulder instability, and knowing who we need to operate on and when, and the future is disease-modifying drugs. In other words, traumatic event, setting the stage for downstream arthritis, and figuring out ways that we can intervene early to prevent downstream osteoarthritis. That would be the future of medicine, and I don't think MSCs are going to get us there. Wow. I think drugs will, but, yeah. you know, look, when I was a resident, we were operating on rheumatoid arthritis patients all the time. I see, you know, one a month now because they've done such an amazing job of disease-modifying drugs. Yeah. I mean, you're younger than I am. You're training. How often do you see, did you see rheumatoids in your training? Probably very rarely. Yeah, right. They're all in the rheumatoid physician the rheumatologist's office and they're doing a great job right. we need to be doing that for osteoarthritis who's your favorite professional athlete that you've taken care of you know my favorite high level individual <laughs> my favorite person i've ever met and impact and been involved with their treatment was james taylor it wasn't even an athlete <laughs> yeah what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give to someone who's thinking about a career in sports medicine it's the it's like any career if you have passion for it and you don't look at it as a job, you look at it as almost as a hobby, as part of your life, and you have just complete, utter passion for, for this for this field, it could be a field for you. Because, you know, there isn't a day that I go to work that I'm unhappy to be there, and that could be seeing patients doing surgery, because it just never goes away. The, the buzz of treating a patient, having them come back and say, you know, you made an, an, an incredible difference in my life, and now I can do things I couldn't do before, that never gets old. And we say it's, you know, it's not about the income, it's, it's the outcome. And I think there could be nothing more true than that. That never goes away. And, and when I talk to the residents and so forth, if they're not happy and they can't really relish in the management of a human being with their problem, not that they're a problem that happens to be in a human being, but it's a human being with a problem and they can't get that and sit down for two minutes to try to get inside the head of an individual, then it's probably not the right space for them to be in. That's great advice. 
So that's pretty much it. That's all the questions I've got for you, Dr. Cole. Thank you so much for doing this. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing, uh, if you've got anything exciting coming up and how people can get in touch with you and find out more about you. Um, I guess that's the, uh, the, uh, that's the, uh, the plug I get, right? So um, I, I have a really robust website, and that's probably the best place to go. I still, yeah. Yeah, BrianColeMD.com. I mean, I you know we do a radio show on uh, the Score 670 in Chicago. That's sports medicine radio that you know really tries to cater to, to adults who want to remain active. It's nutrition, it's things like that. But my whole life is on my website, and it's really easy to get access to me. And I still answer all my you know I still answer 100 to 200 emails a day to all my patients. Have my email. Um, I'm probably one of the most available human beings around to uh, whoever uh, might need me. But and if you do, and if I'm not the right person, I'm going to send you to someone who can help you. That's awesome. So that's a wrap. Thanks very much for doing this. Uh, this has been fantastic. Great. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsors, Taruma BCT and Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Jones. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.